Hello, everyone, and welcome to the TMA Ask the Expert podcast series. Today's podcast is entitled Comprehensive Management of Neuropathic Pain. I'm Roberta Pesce from the Transverse Myelitis Association. We are a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune diseases. You can learn more about us on our website at myelitis.org. We're very pleased to be joined by Sam Huge from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, TM, and NMOSD program, who will be moderating our podcast today. This podcast is being recorded and will be made available on the TMA website for download via iTunes. During the call, if you have any additional questions, please send them to us via our Facebook page at facebook.com slash myelitis, or you can send a message through the chat option available with GoToWebinar. Thanks, Roberta. For today's podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Drs. Benjamin Greenberg and Richard Robinson. Dr. Greenberg is recognized internationally as an expert in rare autoimmune disorders of the central nervous system. His research interests are in both the diagnosis and treatment of transverse myelitis, neuromyelitis optica, encephalitis, multiple sclerosis, and infections of the nervous system. He's actively involved in developing better ways to diagnose and prognosticate for patients with these disorders. He also coordinates trials to study new treatments to prevent neurologic damage and restore function in those who have already been affected. Dr. Robinson currently serves as the Director of Research for the Division of Psychology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Clinically, he treats patients through anesthesiology and is involved in ongoing research projects through the Eugene McDermott Center for Pain Management. In addition to his work in pain and symptom management, he is involved in adult attachment research and personality Welcome you both and thank you for being with us today. And before we dive into the questions, I wanted to turn it over first to Dr. Greenberg to give us an overview of how neuropathic pain comes about in these uh, disorders, these autoimmune disorders of the central nervous system, and then move on to Dr. Robinson to discuss more of the psychological uh, impact and how psychological factors might impact the uh, the causes of pain in these disorders. So, Dr. Greenberg, would you like to speak first? Sure, Sam, and I appreciate you moderating today, and also thanks to the Transverse Myelitis Association for putting this together. We face in our clinics uh, fairly regularly conversations about pain control, and uh, if I had two objectives for, for today between myself and Dr. Robinson, it would be to uh, achieve, one, an understanding of what neuropathic pain is and how is it different than other types of pain, and number two, break down the barriers that are perceived by many between Dr. Robinson's practice and my practice, um, where what we do is an integrative uh, approach. Uh, there is not a neurologist-run approach to pain or a psychologist-run approach to pain. Uh, it has to be unified. And so hopefully while we'll, we're each speaking, uh, folks will see that uh, there is integration and a need for everybody to integrate their approach to pain. And it all starts with what neuropathic pain is. So there are lots of types of pain in the world. The ones that most people are familiar with because we've all experienced them is tissue pain. So this is anything from stubbing your toe on the, the kitchen cabinet to breaking a bone. There's physical damage to skin, muscle, bone. Uh, in the setting of a burn, there's thermal damage to skin, but an actual physical event that causes nerves, 
in your body to send pain signals to your brain. And this is biologically important so that we as uh, human beings, as organisms, learn not to do certain things that can lead to harm. So if you put your hand on a hot stove and uh, get a burn, you learn at an early age, don't do that again because it leads to tissue damage. That type of pain signal goes through a certain circuit within the spinal cord in the brain so that you can interpret it and react appropriately. Neuropathic pain is completely different. In neuropathic pain, while you are sensing discomfort or flat-out pain, there is not tissue damage, no damage to the skin, the muscle, or the bone that's leading to that signal. There are lots of leading theories as to why neuropathic pain occurs, and the top two explanations that get batted around are first, after damage to the wires in the spinal cord in the setting of transverse myelitis, that there is a misfiring of neurons and, and inappropriate or um, phantom signals get sent up to the brain so you perceive a stimulus, a painful stimulus that isn't actually there. There is another theory of pain that probably has more data to support it, and that is that there is actually not a misfiring of the nerves, but a lack of information making it to the brain, and your brain is doing things to fill in the gap. And what do I mean by that? So within your skin, you have neurons that sense all different types of sensation. There are neurons that are there to sense vibration, neurons that are there to sense pressure, neurons that are there to sense temperature, neurons that are there to sense pinpricks, and so on. All of that information every second of every day is being transmitted through those neurons to the spinal cord, up the spinal cord to the brain. Yet in the spinal cord, those signals run together by function, meaning all the vibration signals run together, all the pain signals run in a group of wires together, all of the signals relative to pressure run in a group together. Such that if you damage the spinal cord in certain areas, your brain is getting sensory information from your body, but it's incomplete. Imagine a world where your brain only gets 80% of the sensory information, and what it's missing is just the vibration sense, or it's missing just the pinprick. So it has to make sense of a world with incomplete information. And unfortunately, there's data to suggest that the brain likes to make stuff up. It likes to fill in the gap, and often what it fills in the gap with is uncomfortable sensations, squeezing, burning, uh, electrical shocks, tingling, all sorts of different syndromes that are described when somebody has damage in the spinal cord. So when we're approaching neuropathic pain, we have to remember that a lot of the techniques, whether they be medical interventions, whether they be physical therapy, whether they be working with psychologists to work on coping skills and mind-body interaction skills, all of those are used because the fundamental issue is a brain's misinterpretation of the world, and we have to get at the root cause. So as we move forward, I want everyone to keep in mind kind of that background of what neuropathic pain is, and then hopefully it'll be clear why it is uh, that we have experts like Dr. Robinson and others to take a holistic approach to, to treating these syndromes. Great. Thank you, Dr. Greenberg. That's a, that's a great overview of where the pain comes from and how it works. Uh, Dr. Robinson, could you chime in uh, with an overview of uh, uh, Dr. Greenberg was saying kind of the mind-body interaction and, and how 
your role as a psychologist um, plays in the pain management. Absolutely, and thank you guys again for having me on today. It really is a, a thrill and a pleasure, and that was a wonderful introduction to how we begin to integrate uh, working as a team to get pain under better, better control. <clears throat> One of the things Dr. Greenberg had mentioned reminds me of a saying that we have in the field these days, which is no brain, no pain. That that's really where the pain signals are being uh, translated into this really pleasant, nasty uh, sensory experience. And one of the things we have to remember about pain is pain is a um, sensory and emotional experience. And where it goes in the brain are really two major areas that we focus on. One is the somatosensory cortex. This is a part on the surface of the brain that tells us where we're getting uh, the signals and these, and these sensations. Where, where are we experiencing this discomfort? But the part of the brain that really makes pain pain is a part of the brain called the limbic system, which is the pain and emotional processing center of the, of the brain. So we can begin, to, to, if we can uh, allow ourselves to think about pain from a neuroscience perspective, we can move beyond this distinction between, oh, is it physical or psychological, an idea that we've really have been trying to abandon for the past 40 years, and rather think of this more from a biopsychosocial approach. So what is, how a psychologist works with an individual with pain is really in two major ways. First, um, when you have pain, and it persists for longer and longer periods of time, it's like, a, it's like a pebble being thrown into a pond. It impacts more and more areas of a person's life, perhaps their sleep at first, then their mood, their ability to concentrate, their ability to really derive pleasure from work and their social interaction. So many individuals who have pain that persists for longer and longer periods of time begin to experience symptoms such as depression, uh, ang uh, ang anxiety, fear, and anger. And we know that while these uh, symptoms like depression and anxiety do not in and of themselves cause pain, they certainly can serve to maintain the pain and aggravate uh, the pain. It's the same neurocircuitry. Uh, secondly, the other thing that we do uh, as psychologists working with individuals with pain is we're really trying to help retrain the brain retrain the way the brain is processing uh, those signals, trying to kind of quiet uh, the brain down in some ways. And we do this through a number of techniques. Uh, relaxation training uh, to start with that in and of itself can help to ameliorate uh, the discomfort. Uh, we can move on to fancier uh, tools and techniques like uh, hypnosis or biofeedback where we hook someone up to a computer and they're looking at indirect measurements of their, their nervous system in real times. And probably the, the area that's gotten the most attention recently and probably has the best evidence basis is mindfulness uh, meditation where, where we're beginning to see now that over the course of three weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, we can begin to change in some very subtle but profound ways the, the way in which uh, the brain is wired. And so when we think about psychology working with pain. We think about it as part of this integrated team. The physical therapists uh, play an important role. Physicians play an important role. We're all working together to go after this pain from several different angles. In, uh, if I can, Sam, jump in. Um, a couple of the comments Dr. Robinson made reminded me of some of the conversations I, I have in clinic uh, with patients. And I'm 
I'm curious to get his input. One of the things, and, and I'll, I will self-disclose, you know, when we talk within medicine about the differences between classically Western-trained physicians and, you know, Eastern approaches to uh, medicine and alternative and holistic approaches, uh, if I had listened to this uh, podcast 15 years ago, uh, I would have felt as some of the things that Dr. Robinson was talking about was fringe or new age or, or just a, a different approach than what I was being trained with in my medical school. And what's fascinating is uh, within pain, in particular within medicine, I, I think we're learning very rapidly that there does need to be a meeting of a variety of approaches to care because of the biology that maybe wasn't explained as well in the past, but is getting better. And in particular, the example I use in, in the clinic when talking about the notion of mindfulness, which to some, uh, quite frankly, and, and maybe Dr. Robinson has experienced, just gets dismissed out of hand. Mm -hmm. I, I have a physical pain. We're talking about breathing techniques. How is this going to help me? And the example I use is uh, one of Houdini, uh, the great escape artist, um, who was able to, you know, lock himself in a trunk and be underwater for hours on end with no air. And the question was, you know, how did he, what trick was there? Well, there wasn't a bottle of air in there. He, he learned to use a part of his brain called the insular cortex to control his body's function. He could, he could sit and change his blood pressure and change his pulse and change his breathing rate so he could survive in a confined space for hours beyond the amount of time I could survive in that confined space. And it was, there are individuals in the world who on their own learned that they could control the physical functioning of their body. Um, and it works. And in, in our experience, uh, it can work with pain too. But these are not skills that are uh, naturally formed. They, they are not something we're born with, in my experience. Uh, and very few people, I think, figure out how to do it themselves. Otherwise, we'd have a lot more escape artists like Houdini. And our view of the world when working with Dr. Robinson and colleagues is to act as guides for our patients on how do you access those centers of the brain that exist that can actually modify your physical experience. Um, and uh, for, for those listening uh, who, who hear this, and, and I'm, I'm curious, Dr. Robinson, your experience in terms of how open patients have been to explore these types of things, um, we've found some patients who are more open than others. Um, and it's, it's always a, a challenge. Uh, it's not always. It is often a challenge to get people to accept a referral to a psychologist because a lot of patients will tell me uh, they feel as though I'm labeling them as it's all in your head or you're crazy. Right. And, and we, we spend a lot of time just trying to explain uh, why we take this approach. No, and, and you're absolutely right. There's oftentimes some, some confusion about why someone might come to see me. And I think probably one of the more harmful things that can be uh, said to a patient is if a doctor does uh, imply, oh, this is in your, this is in your, in your head, which I know that most physicians um, aren't aren't doing. But sometimes it's, we have to be mindful about how that message comes across. But when I work with patients, there's really been, you know, in in the past, I would focus, I'd maybe give them an example of how our thinking begins to to change our physical uh, uh, perceptions or even change our physiology. A really very simple example where I might have someone 
I might say, could you make your mouth water? Most people can't. I might say, I want you now to close your eyes and I want you to imagine a big juicy lemon slice. Can you really smell that lemon? Can you really imagine that sour smell coming from this? Now, put it in your mouth and bite on it. And most people's mouth will begin, will begin to water. Even though there's no lemon, I'll point out there's no lemon in sight. We, there doesn't smell like lemons in here, but you're actually able to change your physiology simply by imagining biting into a lemon. And the other area that really has, has grown is the neuroscience of pain. And I think that as a psychologist, uh, I try my best to, to keep up with that and to use that as a way to explain the kind of things we're going to be doing because there's been amazing research in the neuroscience of pain in the past 15 years. Probably the, the most well publicized is that of Sean Mackey at Stanford. And I'll draw a picture of the, the brain for most of my, my patients and talk about the somatosensory cortex and the limbic system. But what Sean Mackey was able to show is that the amount of activity in a certain part of the brain, a certain part of the limbic system, the more it lit up, the more pain uh, a, person, a person would experience. Uh, now, he then began to train them in just some simple techniques, breathing techniques, distraction techniques, and they would see a decrease in the activity of that brain in real time while a person was in, an, uh, in a specific type of MRI. Um, and <clears throat> what, we then, what he was able to show was that patients with, they, I think the, the first study was with chronic low back pain, that those folks were able to decrease their pain by 64%. And then I'll go on to, to talk about the, the, the study where they did a similar thing with uh, individuals who had no pain, but they actually were causing pain. They were causing acute pain in that individual, and they were able to bring it down by, by 25%. Uh, but the other thing, the other message, and I, I, this is something I believe in the bottom of my heart, is that there really isn't this distinction between physical and psychological. You know, that, that if, if someone asks me, you know, is so-and-so's pain real? I mean, if we really kind of follow the logic of that question, that means that the person's either malingering, that means they're faking it, or they're hallucinating. And that's not what's going on with our, with our patients. Uh, rather, I really try to focus on what's referred to as the biopsychosocial model, that all these things interact, that, that, that there's really no difference between physical and psychological, and that while we're going to have, we're going to have the physician prescribing the right kind of medications, we're going to have the physical therapist working on, um, on the body and some of, that, some of the, the, the input or problems uh, that might, might arise, but we're also going to work at the way the brain is processing um, these signals. And as with these advances in neuroscience, and if you're able to take the time um, and explain it to folks, they really do, there's not as much of this, oh, you think it's in my head or this is you know, evidence of an unresolved conflict. It really, we really are able to move away from that. Uh, it, it sounds like from, from the two of you that uh, pain, as it, as it turns out, is, is really a, a, a holistic and multidisciplinary issue. And managing it can take a lot of people out of different areas of expertise to really really tease out, um, first of all, what, what could be causing it and also how to, ma how to manage it afterwards. And so if um, I'm going to dive into some of the questions here, there were uh, a lot of questions that came in from the community, a lot of very um, specific questions, a lot of them that get to 
uh, uh, kind of the, the meat of one uh, main question that I'm going to start off going to Dr. Greenberg here. Um, when, when there's a patient who has a, a spinal cord illness, whether it be you know, idiopathic transverse myelitis or in the context of NMO spectrum disorder, um, there's, you know, it can be the burning neuropathic stinging pain that, that comes with it. But also with time, um, there can be maybe orthopedic issues that arise um, uh, that can lead to pain. There uh, can be spasticity uh, and muscle issues that lead to pain. Um, how, how do you as a physician tease out uh, what could be the cause of these of, of the types of pain that can come from, from these disorders? And how do you treat them accordingly? Yeah, so that's a great question, and it highlights a major issue that we deal with in the clinic, and that is um, just because somebody has one type of pain does not mean they have other types of pain. So we'll classically see patients who have both <clears throat> pain from a neuropathic pain, a burning uh, electrical sensation, a tightness around a limb or around their abdomen or chest, uh, one of the classic neuropathic pain syndromes, but they'll also have muscle tightness or muscle spasms leading to pain, or perhaps they're now experiencing headaches. Because of their muscle tightness, they're not sleeping as well, and they're getting headaches. <clears throat> and the challenge that happens for us is people will come in and I'll say, how are things going? And they'll say, poorly. I'll say, what's wrong? And they'll say, I'm in pain. And if there isn't a careful history and discussion about what does the patient mean by that, often we start going down the wrong pathway. So I encourage patients to separate their pain into the different categories. I'm experiencing pain, which includes some headaches, uh, my legs hurt, uh, and I have a burning sensation. And then it's up to the, the person and their clinician to delve into these things to sort out what are the root causes of each type of pain, because often the treatments may be different and sometimes uh, they're interconnected. Sometimes uh, if we treat the muscle tightness and people can sleep better, their headaches go away. So it's, it's a two-way street. It's a conversation where uh, we are looking for uh, patients to help guide us uh, and be specific about what's going on and to break things down into bite-sized pieces. Chronic pain management is a marathon and not a sprint. There, there is not a single prescription I'm going to write and cure people of pain, but there is a process that we can engage in to get people to significantly reduce their pain and manage what is left, if not completely alleviate the pain. Um, but that process is a partnership, and the description I use is uh, one of a baseball team, except uh, with a patient as a pitcher and the clinician as the batter, the only difference is the patient and the, the pitcher and the batter are on the same team. So you, you want us to hit a home run every time. So as the patient throwing those balls in, do you want to throw curveballs or do you want to throw softballs nice and slow? So it's about coming to clinic organized. It's about coming with a priority list um, and recognizing that everything on the list may not be addressed uh, at every visit. The realities of medicine today are limited time. So we look to review the list of concerns, address as many as we can with action plans, and always leave clinic with what the follow-up is expected to be. If we initiate a plan for the muscle tightness, but we don't get to a different issue, 
There should be a plan of when you should contact your clinician again to report is the intervention working or not. Um, but keeping track of the different types of pain is very important because often we will pick uh, different therapies for different types of pain. So, Dr. Robinson, um, as Dr. Greenberg answered that question, he, he said that there are different approaches to different kinds of pain from a, from a medical standpoint. Um, from a psychological standpoint, when you see a patient who has chronic pain, um, well, regardless of where it's coming from, do you, are there different ways from the psychological perspective that you go about intervening uh, based on the type of pain, or is it kind of the same, the same rules apply across the board? Well, before I, before I jump into that, I just want to echo something that Dr. Greenberg had said, and that I think there are some commonalities among the different types of pain. Uh, one, though, is really that empowering patients, and that's kind of what I was hearing in Dr. Uh, Greenberg's uh, message, that oftentimes I, I like to, when I think of chronic pain, and when I'm speaking with, with patients, I oftentimes use the, the metaphor of type 2 diabetes, that, that yes, there are medications uh, that can help to manage that that diabetes, but oftentimes it's the some of the self care it's the right kind of activity and most importantly the right kind of of eating those things that a patient can do to maintain control over those symptoms. I think of chronic pain across the board um, in 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 that in that very similar uh, fashion, which is you know, what are the things that the patient can do that helps them uh, get their pain under better control? What kind of things can they, can they practice? What kind of exercises can they, can they engage? And I think that when, when we have pain for such a long period of time, it can very much feel, as many of my patients will tell me, like kind of a turtle stuck on its back, feeling uh, at times perhaps hopeless and, and what do I need to do? But when we're able to partner with um, our, our physicians and find out the roles that we can play. I think that can be incredibly useful overall. Now, in terms of um, in terms of different tools for different uh, 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 different pain conditions, um, there are certain uh, meditative techniques that I, I very much like with uh, uh, neuropathic pain uh, to help us begin to experience those those sensations uh, differently. Uh, without going into too much detail, there are certain meditative techniques where they're maybe meditating upon their pain and noticing how it changes. I find that hypnosis um, is, is very useful with neuropathic pain because you're trying to change the way the brain is, is interpreting um, the, uh, what, what, those signals that are going, that, are, that appear to be coming from the body. Um, However, there are some tools where I think uh, there are some things I do a little bit differently uh, with things like uh, back pain where we maybe uh, help them begin to process it as pressure rather than pain. It's a little bit different than we do with, the, uh, with folks who are suffering from neuropathic pain. The other thing we do a lot of in addition to these tools is we have very specific uh, writing exercises that we'll, we'll develop for just about every uh, pain condition. And these are these are exercises not only meant to help with depression and anxiety, but again to help change the way the brain is is managing uh, these symptoms. And and probably there, there's a there's an old book um, from from the 80s by Dr. David Burns called calling the called the Feeling Good Handbook. And this actually was kind of an introduction to the public uh, of this topic of cognitive behavioral therapy, whereby we're trying to understand the ways in which 
our thoughts influence not only our emotions but also our, our physical physical state. So we'll do these writing exercises with individuals where they may have woken up and the pain was just screaming at them that this morning. We we want them to write, you know, what is their pain on a scale of zero to ten, as well as uh, describe the emotions that are there. But then we look at, you know, what are the thoughts associated with this? The pain is killing me. I'll never get better. I'll lose my job. Whatever those thoughts may be that really have a lot of emotion behind them, we'll pick one and begin to go after it. We look at the evidence that supports that thought, the evidence that doesn't support that thought, and we come up with a more balanced, objective, and realistic thought. And what we typically see is that not only do, does um, do emotions begin to decrease, we can see some we can begin to see some changes in the perception of the pain and in the intensity of that pain beginning to get chipped away and going down. It's one of the, the coping mechanisms we use across individuals who, who have pain. Yeah, it's uh it's good to it's good to know that there are different different ways to approach um um the different kinds of pain and really just sounds like just being able to face the pain head on and say how does it really make you make you feel how does it really affect your life it can be a step in 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 moving toward helping understand it better um well yes and you know one of the ways the brain works is that is that as Dr. Greenberg had, had talked about the pain is is really meant to protect us. It's really a danger signal. The brain is going danger, danger, danger. Something is going on in 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 my body that's 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 not right. And again, it's associated with that limbic system, that emotional processing system. And so we're, while we're wired to to want to hate it and to fight it, and for good reason for the 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 impact it's having. On our lives, we want to. We oftentimes, I'm going to try to get patients to begin to perceive it a little differently, to begin to move away from fighting it, to see if we can't can experience it in slightly different different ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, moving on to a, to another question over to Dr. Greenberg, that kind of um, I think piggybacks onto uh, the last one. There are a few questions that came in regarding um, uh, maybe past past spinal cord events. Years years ago, um, that may or may not have included pain, uh, but that years later, with no acute incident, no apparent reason for there to be change, there's new pain, or pain has changed that might have been um, dealt with prior to, and kind of the frustration into uh, um, dealing with the new pain or the ever-changing pain. Uh, can you speak to maybe why that happens? Why pain suddenly comes up years later? Um, or and and kind of how to deal with the, the changing neuropathic pain. So again, that's a, a good question, and I'm going to break it into two parts. So the first is, um, if pain is ever uh, new and out of the blue, or developing years after uh, the spinal cord event, um, it is a known phenomenon that it can happen, but it should never be a assumed uh, to be the cause without a thorough evaluation. We have had uh, patients who had had transverse myelitis years earlier that developed new pain in their feet, and it's assumed that it's from their spinal cord event, but in fact, uh, what was going on is they had developed diabetes and were developing nerve damage that was leading to pain. And so I always start with making sure you have a thorough evaluation with a clinician to ensure there's not a alternate cause of the pain. I've had uh, patients with chest pain that was assumed to be from their spinal cord, 
only to find out later that we were dealing with blood clots or heart issues. And so everything starts with that thorough evaluation to make sure that whatever syndrome you're experiencing uh, has been shown as best as possible to be related to the spinal cord injury and the neuropathic pain. Now, that said, pain related to spinal cord injuries, whether it be transverse myelitis or other, can definitely evolve over time. So patients can start with no pain and then develop pain months or even years later. They often can describe one type of pain that changes over time. And our best understanding is, since this is a perception issue, as the brain changes and as the spinal cord changes, that perception changes. And so it's not unusual for there to be a bit of a moving target when it comes to the type of pain or, or pain control over time. The, the key is to have uh, that thorough evaluation and then that discussion with your clinicians, if other things have been ruled out, what would be the best strategy to deal with this? It is not, by definition, a bad thing relative to prognosis around the spinal cord. So one of the concerns I hear raised is, is this a sign that things are coming back, inflammation is coming back, that I have a progressive disorder versus a one-time disorder? And the answer is overwhelmingly uh, a generalization that no, it's not a bad prognostic sign. In fact, a change in sensory patterns is more the rule than the exception when it comes to spinal cord disorders. And so we don't consider it an independent alarm bell. Um, that is part of, however, the thorough evaluation that clinicians should do to make sure nothing's changing. It is extremely rare for us to find that be the sign of new inflammation. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's an important point. I think that a lot of people were, were asking, just really trying to, to flesh out what that means when there's new pain changing. Um, there were a number of questions that came in when you have a uh, podcast like this about pain and more holistic management about alternative therapies, specifically uh, marijuana or some kind of cannabis um, uh, uh, supplement. Uh, but not just that, there's also questions about um, low-dose naltrexone, uh, high doses of magnesium and vitamins and other supplements like that. Uh, I'll throw this back to you again, Dr. Greenberg, and Dr. Robinson, chime in as you uh, um, have any experience with working with patients from the psych standpoint with these. Uh, sure. With these yeah. So, yeah, this is definitely going to be a tag team. I'm not doing this one alone without Dr. Robinson. <laughs> so, and, and I, I specifically want to separate out, uh, so there were a list of different substances, uh, drugs, uh, 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 medicines, uh, brought up in that list, and I want to separate out um, three different groups of substances that people often take uh, when trying to combat their pain. I want to separate it into prescribed FDA-approved medications, whether they're used in an off-label fashion or not. So, for example, often we'll use drugs that are FDA-approved as an antidepressant present, but we use them for chronic pain, not because of their mood-elevating uh, capabilities, but because they actually treat the biologic pathways that uh, can perceive pain. So FDA-approved medications is one category. Second category would be um, supplements, uh, what are uh, sold uh, online, in stores, without a prescription, as herbal remedies, supplements, vitamins, nutritional supplements, those types of things. And then the third category would be 
depending on what state you're in, uh, illicit drugs, uh, drugs that uh, do not require prescription, but have been identified in some states or nationwide as uh, having addictive potential, uh, and there's a huge area of research around that that needs to be addressed. So let me start with the middle category, the supplements and the vitamins. I am all in favor of patients exploring a variety of ways to manage pain. What I remind people, however, is just because something is labeled as natural and some, just because something is not sold by a pharmaceutical company and just because something doesn't need a prescription does not mean it is safe. We are managing a uh, patient in the ICU at UT right now uh, who was put into a coma based on a nutritional uh, supplement, an over-the-counter thing that she got online. These are not FDA-reviewed. They do not have the same policies regarding manufacturing. And while I am just as in favor of natural approaches uh, to health as possible, uh, it is definitely buyer beware. We do not always know what uh, these substances will do. So it is hard for me, at least, to comment on those because the data is just lacking. Now, would I love to see funded studies to prove the safety and efficacy? Absolutely. The third category, which was, Sam, you mentioned marijuana as one example, and that's going to end up being a unique one because of different state approaches to it. Um, it is something that patients have uh, used in my clinic, in the, not actually physically in my clinic, but patients under my <laughs> care have used uh, to manage pain with some success. There have been patients where, especially for spasticity issues, have found uh, relief. And I have no independent reason um, uh, to just say it's a bad idea, but I'd be curious uh, to have Dr. Robinson chime in on uh, the concerns we have for all substances, whether they be prescribed for my pad or bought by a dispensary in Colorado, for how do we monitor the benefit risk both physically and how do we monitor the benefit risk calculation in terms of psychological effects, addictive effects for managing pain? Yeah, I'm going to wade into this a little carefully. This is not uh, necessarily my area of expertise, but I know that in terms of the, the, the second category, those are the, the supplements. Uh, I, can't, I, come from, I came from Seattle. I was up there for, for a few years. And oftentimes we would have uh, patients with problems with vitamin D deficiency. And you'd have to be tested for that because that's something that can be, if you take it in excessive doses, can be very, very problematic. And so it was quite common for physicians up there to uh, check an individual's vitamin D level and then prescribe vitamin D. And, and we see, I see some physicians here at UT Southwestern, you know, double checking and double checking uh, the B12 levels, which certainly does seem to play a role in things such as as headaches. Uh, and again, those things can be uh, prescribed under the care and guidance of a physician. Now, as I mentioned, I did come from Seattle, and I, I came there prior to when it was uh, or marijuana was legal for recreational purposes, but was legal uh, for <coughs> medical medical purposes, and one of the things that uh, when I talk to my colleagues in Seattle right now is that the, the strains of marijuana have, have changed. It used to be a one-to-one -one ratio of THC to cannabinoids, um, and they kind of had an interactive uh, effect. Now the, 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 the marijuana that, that is prescribed that they are used at these dispensaries often have a very, very high 
THC. And in Seattle, they're having a lot of problems with people having having panic attacks. That these that these medications can be overly overly powerful. The other thing about marijuana is that it, there's I think the jury is still out about its long-term um, effects. And New England Journal of Medicine, gosh, this is probably about 15 years ago, did a pretty thorough review and said, yes, there's some benefits uh, uh, for pain management, but it doesn't seem to be better than some of the other medications out there. Yes, it's okay, it's good for nausea, but maybe not as good as some of the other medications out there. But we do know that, that there is some evidence of it impacting long-term uh, memory, uh, some evidence of it impacting uh, uh, motivation. But typically when, you, when you're taking any kind of substance, it can kind of stunt the development of your own coping skills and resiliency to manage these things. So I don't have too much more to add to that, but I would, you know, uh, caution individuals for looking for um, cures with these kind of mind-altering substances uh, such as marijuana. Um, there's a lot of interest in that, uh, obviously, obviously across the nation and, and I think there's also what we're seeing more in the headlines now is um, the use of opiates with pain um, and from medical, in medicine, kind of the crackdown on that and what it's done uh, in many ways socially um, with addiction and, and I think that that's kind of a that's a wise thing to bring up in this in this conversation as um, you know the, the use of, of opiates might be um, more prevalent in pain. So Dr. Greenberg um, do you have anything to weigh in in terms of, of the use of, of opiates and other uh, addictive um, uh, substances for the treatment of pain? Yeah, so when it comes to the classes of prescribed medications, one of the things I'll point out for folks is opiates as a class of medication tend to be much lower down on my list uh, for prescribing for neuropathic pain, not necessarily because of the addictive side, but because, frankly, they don't work as well as other medications. Opiates biologically work extremely well for pain secondary to tissue damage. If you break a bone, you should get an opiate to manage the pain. If you've had surgery, it's an appropriate medication to use postoperatively to control pain because the pathway of tissue damage is what's driving your experience. In neuropathic pain, it's not the tissue damage, it's how your brain and how the, the limbic system that, that Dr. Robinson spoke about is interpreting the experience. And in general, in my experience and what the literature suggests is opiates make the patient not care as much about the pain, but the pain's still there. And that is not a um, perfect uh, outcome. That's not what we're shooting for when it comes to pain control. So uh, my primary reason for, for not having them be a go-to medication is on the efficacy side. Now, that said, opiates also have a far greater addictive potential and potential for something called tachyphylaxis, which means the body gets used to whatever dose you're on and over time, you need escalating doses to achieve the same desired outcome. But with those escalating doses can come escalating side effects or other issues. So for a variety of reasons, uh, while we do use opiates in our approach to pain control, they, they tend not to be our, our go-to medication. Yes, they, I, I, like to, I like to echo that as well. As mentioned, they're wonderful for a short period of time when there's when there's uh, tissue damage. Someone is surgery or they break they break a bone. Um, but back in the late 90, 1990s, early 2000s, 
a group of very well-meaning physicians really were trying to promote the use of opioids as safe and effective for longer and longer periods of time. And so we saw more and more individuals being prescribed, being prescribed opioids. And over that, that period of time, we saw approximately a 300% increase in uh, opioids for pain management, as well as a 300% increase in opioid-related deaths, for, I think about four to 500% increase in uh, individuals seeking treatment uh, for opioids. And so some of these same people who really had, had argued these are safe and effective have now uh, come around and said they're good, but you know when we start going past 90 days, we really run into some problems. And actually, there's been there's been very few studies that have that have looked at the continuous use of opioids past 16 weeks. So we know that there is this dose-dependent harmful effect of opioids over time, with very limited evidence bases for a kind of extended chronic opioid therapy. There are a lot of things to consider when you're prescribing these medications. There was a question that came up. Um, uh, are there any new or promising medications, or I'll expand that to say any kind of uh, therapies or techniques on the horizon to, to manage the central nervous system uh, neuropathic pain? Or are we limited with what we have right now? I, I could mention a non-pharmacological intervention that seems to be growing in popularity with a good evidence basis, which is actually neurofeedback. We're actually um, you know, hooking someone's you know, head up to look at you know, certain patterns of brainwave activity in real time. And then they're trained uh, via the computer how to, begin to how to begin to control that. And that's offering more and more promise in kind of changing the way the brain is processing uh, those signals. Yeah, and on the pharmacologic side, um, there are actually a variety of different uh, approaches, and I should say pharmacologic and uh, interventional. Um, there are different drugs that are in um, different stages of uh, clinical trials in order to see if they will be safe and of benefit to, to patients with chronic pain. Um, they're not all being tried in the setting of spinal cord. So for example, often we'll find medicines that are used to treat uh, diabetic peripheral nerve pain might be useful for our patients. So there are trials going on in lots of different patient populations of uh, different medications, and we would then use them cross-purpose uh, in other individuals. But the other intervention, uh, besides things like biofeedback or other molecules, that's being studied is the use of electrical stimulators in different ways to treat neuropathic pain. So there are groups that have looked at uh, stimulating different parts of the brain and would it change our perception of pain. We've used deep brain stimulators in the setting of uh, Parkinson's disease and even studies of deep brain stimulation on depression. We've used vagal nerve stimulators for patients with epilepsy. So electrical stimulation um, of the brain or spinal cord has been tried in a lot of ways, and there are now groups looking at it uh, relative to pain control. Uh, you, you bring up the stimulators. There's a question uh, about spinal cord stimulators. Um, uh, and do you think that they are helpful in reducing the chronic nerve pain? Um, could you speak more about that in particular? So spinal cord stimulation for uh, pain syndromes has been um, 
done for, for many years. There are lots of different companies that make simulators that, that can be uh, placed um, on top of the spinal cord uh, in what's called the epidural space. This is a surgical procedure. Um, the uh, wires get laid on top of the spinal cord, and then there's a second incision that's made for the actual stimulator. It's um, uh, you know smaller than a phone uh, that sits under the skin, and then it delivers uh, pulses of current uh, through the wires to the top of the spinal cord. There have been um, uh, studies that have looked at its use and there have been uh, groups that have used this for a while for pain control and in my experience um, I have had patients who have had uh, good benefits from it. I've had patients more commonly who have had good benefits initially with it but then over time uh, a sense of a wearing off phenomenon where it wasn't as beneficial over the long run. And it's, it's hard to know um, who's going to be who. So in general, I look at that as a, not a last resort, but a, a low down on the list resort because it is an invasive procedure. It affects people's ability to easily get an MRI in the future. Um, and for some of our patients, MRIs are needed to follow them over time. And it's not hitting uh, long-term results at a high enough number for me to move it up the list. So I think it's much more about um, patient selection and ensuring that we really have looked into all of our options before, before going down the route of implanting a device. Wait, and I'll just make a comment and, and not to, to be on a soapbox, but um, I, I'm always uh, intrigued uh, when the recommendation is made to go down the route of placing a spinal simulator when a patient has never even met with a pain psychologist like Dr. Robinson. Like, why would we do an invasive procedure until we have tried uh, all of the methods that don't have risks of procedures um, but yet have data to support them? So uh, often what I find when discussing simulators is it, it's an option, but usually there's a lot more we can try first. And in my clinical experience, and this is this is anecdotal, you know, individuals who've had stimulators are typically individuals uh, where it's been helpful is when they've had uh, not necessarily neuropathic pain, but perhaps some radicular pain after a, a failed back surgery. And those individuals who seem to benefit from it are the ones who've engaged in the self-care, the physical therapy, the, the the behavioral medicine, that they're moving in the right direction. But you know what, dang it, they still have to fly across country three times a, a month and sitting in that airplane is, is just um, is, is difficult for them. And so uh, those are the individuals who, when they get a spinal cord stimulator, it does provide a, a, little bit of, a little bit of relief. But we do have to keep in mind that those leads often, often move. Um, and I, I can't tell you how many people I see, and again, I have a biased sample, who had a spinal cord stimulator implanted, but then uh, they hadn't used it in a couple of years because it, it stopped being effective, and yet they still have this device inside of them. There's a, a real risk-benefit ratio with a lot of these these uh, interventions that need to be taken into consideration. Um, as we move into the last few minutes of the podcast, uh, uh, I wanted to bring up this one last question that uh, I think admittedly probably doesn't have a, a real answer or a, or a an easy answer, but since we have both a neurologist and a psychologist, 
uh, on the on the podcast right now. There was a, a question that came up. Uh, I think there's a concern by a lot of people about being on a lot of medications, a lot of substances to help with their pain, and dealing with the side effects, not wanting to 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 be taking all of this for whatever reason. Is there because of the in these diseases the interplay between the organic um, cause uh, of the pain and and the psychological um, impact of, of how we perceive the pain. Uh, do you, um, in your experience, in your opinion, think it's uh, possible to, to really manage the pain that comes with these neurological disorders um, without any meds entirely? You know, from my, from my perspective, I think that we really do want to think about this stuff biopsychosocially. And so I'll see a lot of individuals who, um, let's say they became, they became pregnant and the medication they were taking really, even though it might be safe uh, for, for individuals who are, are pregnant, really want to get off, really want to get off of them. And so that's not, and that's not always an unreasonable goal. But for a lot of folks, we're able to help, you know, working with their physician, working with them, as they're getting their pain under better control, they can begin to go to go down. But for some individuals, uh, you know, the medication can be an important part of the, the treatment protocol as well. Dr. Greenberg, do you have any, any yeah. anything to add? You know, I, I, I agree, Dr. Robinson. And I, the way I like to approach things with patients is to say, let's put the fire out. Let's do whatever we need to do to break the cycle of pain, to get people relief, and then tweak and remove in a very uh, methodical way, whether it be the medications or other approaches, and see uh, what are the interventions that are having the biggest impact and what can we do. Is it possible to get to a point of pain control without medications? Uh, yeah, I, I think it is, but I think it's a long process and person-dependent, and it's an investment. Um, the, the skills that people are taught uh, by Dr. Robinson and his colleagues, uh, like anything else, like learning to play the piano, require practice. Yes. And so people cannot expect to come to an office visit and leave with what they need to be 100% successful at putting those tools into place. They have to practice and fail and practice and fail, repeat again, and it is only through that, that commitment uh, that people see significant uh, modifications to their pain. And I, I wish we had a magic wand to get rid of neuropathic pain. I wish we had a magic pill to get rid of it. Uh, we don't have those, but there is a bit of magic to committing to the long-term work and the intense work. Uh, it takes to control this, but it does work. The success rate is very high, um, but it, it, we can't force people to do what's needed. And you know what's, what's so nice about this is that um, when I'm working with someone, we might have them practice something 20 to 30 to 40 minutes a day, usually not too much beyond that. But if they're able to make that investment for two to three months, you know, not even not even the entire life, but two to three months, they can begin to see some real change. Now, oftentimes people have to uh, engage in some activities to maintain it, but it has this really beautiful cumulative effect over time that they become better and better at changing their experience of those sensations 
over time. And it, it is really, in, and I think in some ways people kind of get addicted uh, in a very positive way to some of these practices because it can help in so many other ways as well. That's uh, uh, very insightful, I think, from, from both of you and, and uh, both the, the, the medical and the psychological side of handling pain and these disorders. Um, in the last five minutes, I'm going to turn it back over to you two to give your wrap-up of, of uh, the takeaways from, from today's conversation um, uh, before we close it out for the day. So, Dr. Greenberg, would you like to start? Sure. And I'll, I'll start again, as I did at the beginning, by obviously thanking you, Sam, the, the TMA, Dr. Robinson, for your incredible contributions. We're very appreciative. And um, I, I want to stress to everybody, first, uh, a notion of, of hope that uh, the struggles that people have right now are, are real, they are impactful in every aspect of life. Um, people who are suffering from chronic neuropathic pain can, can put on a facade and a smile but deal with incredible struggles underneath that can impact work, that can impact family, that can impact marriages, that can impact school. And uh, often uh, things can be dismissed in the clinic, which shouldn't be, and uh, there uh, can be a real sense of hopelessness for a lot of patients. And so I, I really would like to encourage patients to understand that you should be hopeful and not hopeless, that uh, this takes work, and it takes engaging in a care team, and it takes an open mind, not just an open mind on your part in terms of all the different things that we may ask you to try, uh, but an open mind on the part of the clinicians and um, to partner up with you and to try different approaches to your care. And that's not very easy in today's medical world. So you have to seek out the providers that are going to partner with you and then come up with a plan and execute it. Um, if people stay committed to this, I think more often than not, we are very successful. Well, well said. And I would just like to emphasize that I want to stress that if you see a psychologist to help develop some of these tools and to help learn to manage pain, that does not mean that pain is psychological. If people listening to this podcast right now who are experiencing pain, you're not, it's not being imagined. It's not being hallucinated. It is very much real. But we can begin to change the way the brain is processing that those experiences change the way that it's impacting uh, someone's life, and at, together as a team, I love the, anal the the baseball analogy. We can all work together to get this pain under much better control. And then the very nice thing about these types of interventions is, believe it or not, they're not all that 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 costly. Um, most insurance companies accept. You know, most insurance companies have no problem. Um, uh, paying for a service that has been shown time and time again to be evidence-based and to be an important part of the treatment for individuals with uh, neuropathic pain. So I would encourage people to you know, look around in their communities for someone, a um, uh, psychologist who specializes in pain or who's part of a, an interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary team at a local uh, institution and to see, if hey, if, is there something there that might be of use to you? Great. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Dr. Greenberg and Dr. Robinson, for your time and expertise today and sharing with the community. Uh, thank you um, all out there who, who offered up your questions and are listening. Um, I hope that uh, this was helpful to you in some way. 
Um, thank you to the CMA for allowing us to have this platform um, to reach the community and for uh, those who are sponsoring it. Uh, I hope everybody has a great week, and we look forward to hearing from you for the next podcast in March.